Well, this is our third week in Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to kind of land the, the chapter and start up chapter 8 next week. Uh, if you're joining us, this might be really confusing for you. I'm going to do my best to, if this is your first week joining us, I'm going to do my best to try to review a little bit. Um, but this is not the easiest piece of Bible to interpret. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to do our best. Um, you know, our souls as humans, our souls ache for permanency. Does your soul ache for, for permanency? Um, our experience in life has known almost nothing but loss. And the older that you are, the more loss that you've experienced. Have you ever really like been through something where the only word that could describe what you went through was loss? Lost my dad a couple of years ago. He was far too young, 59. The, the word that just could not get out of my head was loss. I just lost him. I didn't lose him eternally. He's with the Father. He's with the Lord. But I lost him in my life, and it was a great, uh, there, there was something just, it was a great subtraction. And most of our life in a fallen world is lost. It's, it's, it's things run out, things end. All the things that we love at some point in this world, we lose them eventually. It's, <laughs> I've made this b joke before. It's the saddest sound in, in the entire universe. It's the sound of your spoon hitting the bottom of the Haagen-Dazs container, right? <laughs> all, all things run out and end, and, it, and it's, it's unfortunate. I really think that, that the majority of our anxiety in life flows from um, this real desire for permanency. We're, we're afraid of losing things. That's why we, we stress about our health. We don't want to lose our life. We stress about our kids. We don't want to lose our kids. We stress about our, our livelihood. We stress about most of the things we stress about. It's out of a fear of a lack of permanency. And I think it's because we have programmed within us this deep longing for something that doesn't go away. You were made for forever. Okay, you were made for forever. There's something out there uh, called phantom pain. Do you know what that is? It's, it's for people that lose a limb or something like that. Sometimes they'll like wake up and they, they feel pain in a limb that's no longer there. Humans, fallen humans, I think have phantom pains when it comes to our eternality. Though we try to make the best out of death and at memorials we try to say encouraging things about you know, the circle of life and death and how important it is and blah, blah, blah. It's total hogwash, right? We, we know we're not supposed to die. We know we're supposed to live forever. We know we're programmed for eternity. And we have phantom pains that tell us that. We ache over the fact that everything seems to end. It's not supposed to be that way. And now the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the undoing of what has been lost. And listen to me, this is important. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has brought the final end to all ends. Think about that. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has brought the final end to all ends. The good news of Jesus is we don't have to deal with ends anymore. The, 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 the misunderstanding about eschatology is that it's the end. It's actually not the end. The book of Revelation is not the story about the end. Daniel is not the story about the end. It's the end of this age. But it's the beginning of the eternal age. It's the beginning of our next life. Jesus uh, made this very clear. John 10, 10, he said very famously, he said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Okay, sin is a thief. Death is a thief. Cancer is a thief. 
rebellion, all of these things that take from us, they're thieves, and our world is permeated by them. We live in a world of, of things that kill and destroy and take, but then Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came into this world to put an end to all ends. So, this is probably the most effective encouragement, I think, for our souls as believers as we attempt to endure hard things. One of the most encouraging things we can remember is that our end is not in this life, that we have an eternal treasure, an eternal destiny, an eternal hope. And our text reminds us of this. That's why we read that passage that we read. Our text this morning reminds us of this. As we land the plane of Daniel chapter 7, I think we're going to walk away with some clarity as to what the main point is supposed to be. Today we pick back up in chapter 7. It's been this unfolding apocalyptic vision that Daniel the prophet had during the time of the exile. Daniel lived about six, uh, what was it, um, 600 to five, between 500 and 600 BC, Daniel lived, and it was a time during uh, God's exile of his people. Uh, he pulled them out of their land in discipline and in correction, allowed them to be overtaken by the Babylonian empire. And Daniel was sort of the face of the exiles. And he was the one who God spoke encouragement to the exiles. Daniel uh, writes this vision down, or has this vision, I should say, in the, the first year of King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar was this, a subsequent king to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he was far less powerful, far less great, and, and, and really just not, a, not a, really an awesome guy. Uh, the, the, this vision would have taken place, if you are familiar with the book of Daniel, between chapters 3 and 4. Okay, And uh, Daniel... He's uh, in, in, in his bed, and he, he wakes up to this incredible vision, and it's not just a dream, it's a, it's a reality. What happens is Daniel is transported out of this dimension uh, into a spiritual dimension, and he's able to see what I would refer to as the backside of the screen. He's able to see um, Earth's events chronologically from a heavenly perspective, and so Earth's events that both are happening and will happen in Daniel's life... Um, are, are, they take on appearances that have great meaning to us. He begins to see uh, the, the sea, which we'll find out is the world, right? And, and out of the sea come these great and terrifying and terrible, destructive, predatory beasts, one after the other, subsequently. The first one is this uh, lion with these eagle's wings, and, um, and it's this, this terrifying picture of a predatory animal that not only is fierce, uh, but can fly and is quick, and then the next beast comes, and it's, uh, it takes place of the first beast, and it's a great bear with, with, uh, with ribs in its mouth. And then that bear is replaced by another even more terrifying beast, a leopard with four wings and four heads. And what we learn is we learn that these, these beasts are clearly referring to these subsequent empires. Okay, and this isn't guessing. It says it in the text. We'll look at it this morning. These, these beasts refer to these empires, these world-ruling empires that are going to raise up throughout the course of history, starting with Babylon, moving into Persia, and then into Greece, and then in the fourth beast is Rome, this, this terrifying beast, this beast that has no simile, that has no animal that it looks like. So this is the first thing that Daniel saw in the vision. We've already looked at that. So you can go back and listen if you like. What we learned about that is we learned that, that human evil just remanifests itself over and over again in, in, in subsequent empires. And it's going to continue to do so until its final form, until it's finally put to death once for all. Okay? So, so uh, we, we learned that. And then the, 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 the narrative of chapter 7 sort of pans away from the beast for a moment over to a courtroom setting. 
where we're introduced to a figure named the Ancient of Days. And this Ancient of Days is sort of this holy, terrifying, righteous, pure figure who, who takes his seat and he's surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of heavenly hosts at his command. And he says, uh, bring me the books. In other words, bring me the records on the beast because the beast is standing to be judged, the fourth beast, okay, which represents all of human evil, all evil human government. So, so the beast is on trial and we see the Ancient of Days pulls out the book and he finds the beast uh, to be guilty and the beast is destroyed eternally, bodily. Good news, right? Uh, we'll talk about what that, that, that is more in a minute. And then looks to another character, this character named the Son of Man, okay? Consequentially, the name that Jesus used most significantly for himself or more, most often for himself, the Son of Man, because he wanted to hyperlink our attention about who he is to this particular figure in Daniel chapter seven, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, we saw last week, is both divine and human. He comes on the clouds, he comes in glory, and as you see the glory cloud begin to open up, you would expect to see Yahweh, but rather you see one who looks like the Son of Man. So whoever this figure is, he's fully God and truly man. And this figure, Son of Man, who is Jesus, okay, comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. And unlike the beast, he's not found wanting or found guilty, he's found worthy. He's found worthy to be given a kingdom, an eternal kingdom and dominion forever. And this is good news. And because the Son of Man is given a kingdom and dominion forever, the saints are also given the kingdom and dominion forever because we are eternally joined to the Son of Man. We've looked at all this so far. And what happens in the narrative today is after the vision is seen and, and portrayed, Daniel looks over to uh, probably an angel, as we'll see, and he asks him, what in the world am I supposed to think about this? And you would do the same thing, right? Um, and so the angel turns and gives him a short, compressed interpretation. We'll look at that. And then Daniel wants more information. So he says, okay, that's cool. What about the fourth beast? That one's terrifying. What, what in the world is going on with that? And then the angel's going to give some, some details. And those details are where we can really start to get into the weeds. And they're not the main point of the vision, but they are important. So we'll, we'll dig into those a little bit, uh, and, then, and then we'll kind of come out of the vision uh, and, and land. So, so that's the text. We're going to work through it. We're going to finish the chapter, uh, and uh, I'm going to try to avoid, now listen to me, I'm going to try to avoid ascribing identity and timelines to these details, because at the end, I actually want to do a comparison of some some different views on different ways to interpret some of these details. Now, let me just say this. All real Christians agree on the real important things in this passage, okay? And, and you've heard it said by others, the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. So we're going to attempt to not miss the main thing, but we are going to show a lot of charity and say there's a lot of different Christians that would interpret some of these details differently. And I want to give you guys exposure to some of those different details. I'll tell you where I'm at, uh, and because and, that's the right way, and then, and then we'll go from, from there. <laughs> Okay, let's dive into the text. Verse 15. So, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So, we're given here by the narrator, we're given here uh, the emotive response of Daniel to the vision. And what we learn is that this vision made Daniel incredibly anxious that this vision alarmed him. And I think that's important. I think that's actually what apocalyptic literature is largely meant to do. 
You know, people kind of read this stuff and it seems kind of bizarre, beasts with multiple horns and heads and wings and what in the world. Uh, well, it's supposed to jar you. It's supposed to dislodge you from passivity. It's supposed to pull you out of, of the comfort zone and wake you up to the fact that reality is far more real and terrifying than you realize, right? And sometimes the things that are dreamlike are more real than the things that, 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 that uh, you experience in your daily life. So Daniel's response is the correct one to this. He's alarmed. And I think that we need to ask, why is Daniel so alarmed? Let me give you two reasons. The first reason Daniel's so alarmed is because wh what he has beheld are things much too high for him. He's literally brought up to God's perspective, and, and he begins to see the way God sees things. Uh, I mean, using too many Lord of the Rings analogies, but I'm going to use another one. Uh, I've been reading the book, so it's like on my brain. There, there's a moment in the, in the, the Lord of the Rings where, where Frodo, this hobbit, um, he puts, actually, no, it's Sam. Sam puts on the ring for a moment, the ring of power, and by putting on the ring, he's immediately transported to this place where he sees the way that the Dark Lord sees he sees everything. He sees all this stuff. And he sees all of the evil marching and all of the wars happening and all of the crazy beasts all around him. And it's overwhelming for this little hobbit for a moment to just be transported to this way. Like he just, he, he's way past his pay grade, okay, is the idea. Takes the, rings off, takes the ring off and he goes back to normal, okay. This is kind of what's happening here with Daniel. This, this, this Jewish man who, uh, who was a great man, but he was just a man, is transported up to a dimension where he is taking in things that are far beyond his ability to comprehend. He does not have an appropriate human interface to deal with what he's seeing. And what he's seeing is a much more closer uh, picture of reality. He's seeing uh, not just beasts, but beasts that represent hundreds of thousands of humans, empires, ages, eons, time, masterful, powerful uh, empires clashing and fighting. He's seeing huge things, and he's seeing the ancient of days, eternal God, Yahweh, and he's seeing his righteous, ferocious holiness, and he's seeing him judge the beast, and he's seeing the son of man. I mean, it's, this is huge stuff. Guarantee his heart is pounding. It's pounding. The other reason he's alarmed by this is because the beast is literally going to molest the people of God. The beast puts the people of God in his mouth and chews and stomps them and devours them and wears them out. The saints become the object of the, the, the ravage anger of the beast. And Daniel is terrified by that. The beast is, is unleashed to... to, to, to to do terrible damage to the saints. And he's alarmed by that. And so understandably, he looks to the closest person around, probably Gabriel, one of the angels, and he goes, what is with the fourth beast? First of all, he just asks, what's this whole thing about? Okay, so let's start there. Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him with the truth concerning all of this. So Daniel wants the synopsis. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of of the things. In other words, Daniel's like, what am I supposed to get from this? And I just want to make a short point here. Uh, some people read this kind of literature and they're like, there's nothing here for me. This is too hard to understand. Wrong. Daniel wouldn't have had this vision if there wasn't something here for him. And it wouldn't be in the Bible if there wasn't something here for us. Okay, so, so the fact that Daniel asks for the truth, what's the truth of this? What's the thing that's supposed to drive me to action? What's the thing that's supposed to change my thinking and my doing and my living and my believing? And the fact that there's an answer tells us that this has application for us. So here's what the angel says. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four great kings who shall arise 
out of the earth. Now, we read that back in when we studied the first part of the chapter, so we already know that. And that's how, by the way, in case you're wondering how we knew that the sea was representative of the earth or the Gentile world, that's how we know. The angel gave the interpretation. So the sea that the beasts come out of, the tumultuous sea, is referring to the chaos of the, the, the godless Gentile uh, world. They, they, they rise out of it. It says 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Okay, now we're going to come back to that because that's important. So that's the synopsis of it. Then verse 19 says, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. Okay, and we, we know why he desired. It says, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. So we're getting a redescription here of the fourth beast. Daniel's really, he's really curious about the, the fourth beast. 20, and about the 10 horns that were on its head. Remember, the fourth beast um, has a, a, a body, but then it has these 10 horns. Now, horns in the Bible usually refer to some kind of uh, power, uh, some kind of person in power. So these, he, he says there's, there's these 10 horns that come out of it, out of its head. And the other horn, there's this 11th horn that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes in a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companion. So this is redescribing what we've already seen. The fourth beast is terrifying. It's destructive. It has 10 horns coming out of its head and then eventually three of those horns are taken away, uprooted, and replaced by this little horn. Weird, right? Uh, this little horn has a big mouth and it has, it has great insight. It's, 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 like a, it's like a man, this, this little horn. Uh, keep reading, 21. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So this little horn takes aim directly. The, he, he, he harnesses the whole power of the fourth beast and unleashes it on the saints, prevailing over them. The saints don't stand a chance. They're, 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 there's no, they're, they don't have the power to, to fight this beast. How long? Well, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the highest. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So it's obvious here why Daniel wants to know about the fourth beast because it's the fourth beast that takes its aim at the saints, at the people of God, okay? Um, now we're, we're given some new details here regarding the fourth beast. We learn in this um, explanation that Daniel gives that the fourth beast prevails over the saints. Let's let's talk about that. Now, by by the way, it's terrifying enough when you're near in collateral range of a dangerous person. Have you, ever, have you ever been around somebody that's like? I just remember there was a couple kids growing up that like they just lived to beat up other kids, and they were good at it right? And I was a scrawny little guy, you know, when I was a kid, and I would avoid those kids, or I would just make sure that they really liked me, <laughs> you know, uh, just really nice to them. And, and, and it's, it's scary enough, like, being around, but what's really scary is when a dangerous person all of a sudden looks at you and goes, you are what I'm going to come after. I had a kid like that growing up that he decided that I was going to be the subject of his torment, right? And, and so it was terrifying, you know? So, so this beast is terrifying enough as it is, it's destructive as enough as it is, but this beast turns its attention to the saints and locks its eyes on that, and it, the saints become the object of his prey. It's largely why the beast is judged. And the beast is commanded, again, by this little horn. 
I just want to remind you of something here, that the, the story of this beast is just referring to one layer in the franchise of evil. The beast refers to the human level, the human layer of evil. But if you read the book of Revelation and you read the rest of the Bible, you're going to realize that the beast is actually just the com- is a commanded stooge of the serpent. Satan is really behind this. Satan is really the ultimate enemy. In the book of Revelation, you find, because Satan's the great counterfeiter, you find something that theologians call the unholy trinity. There's, there's the beast, the false prophet, and the serpent. And they form this, this kind of counterfeit version of God. And, and so just like uh, the, the G- Jesus comes as a man, the Antichrist is sort of this man-type figure that, that is a false version of Jesus. But here's my point, okay? Uh, if we want to stop, uh, as an analogy, if we want to stop drugs on our street, we don't just arrest the drug dealers. We got to go after the people that are actually funneling the drugs, right? Okay? Everyone understands that. So the good news about the gospel is that Jesus didn't just come to stop the beast. Jesus came to take the head off the serpent that pays the beast, right? Jesus came to break down the whole mafia scheme. He came to, bro- to break down all evil from the bottom up, from the top down, from the inside out. Jesus came to destroy evil at every layer. And the destruction of the beast just refers to the human element of it, evil human government. So that's, that's good news, right? Okay. 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, and he's going to interpret what the fourth beast is, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall after th- arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. So let me try to make this as simple as I possibly can. The final beast has a final phase, the ten horns. And the final form of the final phase is the little horn. So so you have the fourth beast, you have its ten horns, and out of those ten horns comes the little horn. So there there is clearly a final beast and a final phase of that final beast and a final form of that final phase. Evil is going to continue and continue and grow and grow until it all comes into one final package and then... God the Father is going to take it out, the whole thing, okay? So that's, that's kind of the idea. So what we learn here is that we learn that these ten horns coming out of the fourth beast are kings. They're, they're kings. They are somewhat of an extension of the fourth beast. I know this is, this is, this is a lot. So love you love it. River loves it. That's good. Anybody else love it? Okay, great. Uh, so uh, this is why you need to read ahead, by the way. So if you read chapter 8, You'll, you'll know a little more what we're talking about. Read chapter 8 for next week. Um, so what this seems to be doing here, by the way, it seems to be mirroring the, the, the statue in chapter 2. Remember the statue? The different metals, okay? Um, you had the head of gold, Babylon. You got the, the shoulder um, of, of silver, um, which was referring to uh, Persia. Then you got the, the, the middle section of bronze, referring to Greece. And then you have these iron legs, referring to Rome, fourth beast, but the iron legs had two phases, remember? You had the iron legs, and then you have feet that were, bro- that were iron mixed with clay, 
and 10 toes, which might be the 10 horns. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Unless they had 11 toes, like, like the six-fingered man from Princess Bride. I don't know. May, you never know. Um, but regardless, so the, there, there's, there's a, a, a similarity here between the statue and the fourth beast. So uh, the fourth beast is almost, almost completely agreed on that, that it's Rome. Okay. But what the 10 horns are, not, not as clear. Now, we learn a little bit about the, the little horn. Verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change times and the law. Okay, so we learn some things about what this little horn is going to do. Okay, first of all, what this little horn is going to do is he's going to blaspheme God. Okay, he's going to blaspheme God. Now, exactly what that looks like and what that means um, probably means he's going to demand worship. If you look at the other places that, that talk about, you know, assuming this is Antichrist perhaps, it seems like he's going to probably demand some kind of worship. And that's a blasphemy to God. And then it says he's going to wear out the saints. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Wear out the saints. That's an Aramaic term. Because remember, this part of Daniel is written in Aramaic. That's an Aramaic term called yabel. Y-A-B-E-L-L-E. And it literally refers to a garment that's worn out. You ever have a garment that you just love so much that you literally wear it until it's like almost nothing? That, that's the idea. The idea is just this thing has been so handled that it's just thin. The saints are going to be wore out by this figure. He is going to make life so miserable for them. <laughs> that was cute. says he will think, are we okay? Uh, he says he will think to change times and the law. He will think to change times and the law. Now, there's all kinds of volumes written on what that might refer to. Um, times probably likely refers to some kind of religious holidays. Perhaps he's going to change or, or limit the ability of when saints can maybe gather. We don't know. Laws probably refers to some kind of a law that's instilled that's going to make it hard for Christians to worship. Okay, and, and, and there's going to be an economic wearing out here. There's going to be a religious wearing out. There's going to be a physical wearing out. Life is going to be hard for the saints when this figure comes into history. It says, they shall be given into his hand, note it, for a time, times, and half a time. Easy. Yeah, time, times, and half a time, you know. Hey, what time are we meeting for coffee tomorrow? Time, times, and half a time. Got it. Thank you. Perfect. Okay, what does that mean? So, so uh, this, this little horn is going to be allowed to wear out the saints for time, times, and half a time. Uh, the most common interpretation of that is that it's referring to a year, years, and half a year. Which, do the math, one year plus two years plus half a year is what? And what is three and a half, half of? Okay, just hold on to that. Okay, this, this would seem to be the same amount of time that we read about in Revelation 11 and 13, where we see 42 months. Okay, you don't need to do the math. I did it for you. 42 months is three and a half years. There you go. Uh, and here's another one. 1,260 days we hear about in Revelation 11 and 12. Guess how long that is? Three and a half years. Okay, 42 months, according to the Jewish count, uh, amount of days. So, so some people, most people probably would equate that time, times, and half a time to, to be, uh, I shouldn't say most, a lot of people would equate that to be uh, half of the, the, the tribulation period. We'll talk more about that in a minute. 
Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away, that's good news, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey. Somebody say amen. Amen. Okay, cool. I like that. Um, so this is, this is review here. We've already seen this happen, but he's, he's reminding him of the point. And 28, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but note it, I kept the matter in my heart. Okay, so this is alarming, yet it's valuable and it's in need of heart level consideration. Uh, Daniel tucks this into a special place near his heart because it has great relevance and great application for the people of God. Okay, so what do we do with that? How do we apply this? Who's the little horn? What are the 10 horns? Who are the three horns, right? Who's the fourth beast? When is the Ancient of Days going to destroy the fourth beast? When is the Son of Man going to be presented the kingdom by the Ancient of Days? You guys want to figure that out? I'm not going to figure it out for you. I'm going to tell you how confusing it is. Okay, so... I wanted, what I want to do is, uh, and I'll tell you the things we know for sure in a minute, and, and there's a lot. There, trust me, there's way more that we know than, than what we aren't sure about. But there is a lot of different ways that a lot of really good, godly Christian scholars and Christians see that this might be happening or have happened or will happen in, in history. And what I want to do is I want to be charitable, and I want to say, look, here's some different positions, and here's uh, how different people and different Christians would interpret some of these things. So we're not going to take too long on this. I just want to give it to you, um, so, and then we can move into the main point. So would you put that up for me here? There are three main positions in Christianity regarding how to interpret some of these things. Can you see that? Is it too small? Uh, I should have printed it for you, but it's a lot of black ink, you know? Um, <laughs> A lot of black ink, you know. Okay, um, so there's three main positions. Gosh, it's hard for me to see that. Th- three main positions on how to interpret this. Uh, the first one is preterist. Can you guys say preterist? preterist. Good job. Can you say futurist? That's the next one. Futurist. And idealist. You don't need to say that one. I know you can say it. I know. I know you can say it. You said it anyways. I didn't ask you to say it. Why did you do that? Okay. So preterist, futurist, and idealist. Here's what preterist means. It's a, it's, a, it's a fancy word you can use to impress your friends. All it really means is past, okay? Past. So you can imagine that the preterist position is probably saying that a lot of these things have already happened. The futurist, you'll never guess what this one is. So if preterist is past, what do you think futurist is? Very good, okay? See, this isn't as confusing as we thought. Uh, futurist means that these things are still gonna happen. We're still waiting for these things to happen, at least some of them. And then there's a third category, which is idealist. And the idealist category is that, you know what, this isn't really trying to tell us a sequence. This is really just trying to communicate an idea. And we shouldn't be too focused on the sequence and the timing and the exact characters. It's, it's the idea, okay, of Antichrist. It's the idea of, um, of tribulation. It's the idea. And, and so we'll get that. Now let's go one by one and let's say, wh- wh- what do these different camps think that these things are referring to? Okay, can I just, can I say this, by the way? We don't have to agree on everything. Did you know that? <laughs> Let's play a game. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you guys a heresy, and you're going to tell me whether we should die for it or not. So if you think we should die for it, then I want you to say, die for it. If you think we shouldn't, then, then, then just don't say anything, okay? Uh, 
Jesus was not God. Very good. Okay. Um, there is a mid-tribulation rapture. <laughs> There's one in every group. Okay. Um, speaking in tongues is for today. It's important. We should talk about it. We can have a positions. And, you know, uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna die for it. You gonna die for that? Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I, so, so there, there are. My point here is there is a gradient to the things that we should die for. Some things we should maybe divide over, and some things we can just talk about. And how some of these details are exactly going to work themselves out in history, I'm not going to fight about it. Love to talk about it. I'm not going to divide over it, and I'm certainly not going to die for it. Okay. Um, so, so, so let's 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 go through these. The three beasts. Okay, the first of the four. The first beast, second beast, three beasts. All three of these positions agree on the, third, on the three beasts. Okay? Uh, now, you, I'm sure you can find some people out there that would disagree with that. But, but the majority of Christians go, easy peasy, three beasts. Babylon, Persia, Greece, got it. Okay. Uh, and it's a it's, it's very, very common position to see those three beasts as those three. You get to the fourth beast, it gets a little more... Contested, the fourth beast. Uh, all three positions see Rome as having a part to play in the fourth beast. The preterist, which means what again? Past, okay. The, the past view sees that the fourth beast is referring to ancient Rome and ancient Rome only. You hear me? So that, that fourth beast doesn't extend past the Roman Empire. Uh, the futurist position sees the, the fourth beast as being both Rome and a re realization of Rome, like a future Rome, a, a refederation of Rome, a reformation of Rome, okay? Uh, it's, it may not be actual Rome, but it's going to be out of Rome. So, because see the ten horns come out of the beast? It's like a, it seems like the ten horns are a second phase to the Roman Empire. So, a lot of people would see, okay, there's going to be another phase to the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire never really ended. It kind of just merged like, like, like an on-ramp into Western culture and a lot of the whole, I mean, the whole world is shaped by, by the Roman world. Uh, so our government structures, our language, like so many things. So a lot of people see Rome never really died. It just turned into, the, you know, and the ten horns, futurist position would see the ten horns as referring to um, probably ten particular kings or ten nations that all kind of come together that will ultimately be ruled by Antichrist. The, the futurist position on the ten horns, I'm getting ahead of myself. The futurist position on Rome, I already said that. The, the idealist position on Rome is that, look, this isn't so much about one fulfillment of this. This is just saying that there's going to be a lot of beastly empires and a lot of beastly anti-God uh, uh, power in the world until Jesus comes back. So the idealist would kind of say, like, we're going to stay out of the weeds and we're just going to take the big idea. Okay, that's the idealist uh, position. The preterists would see the ten horns as the Caesars. Okay? So you got Rome, ten horns are the Caesars. Now, there are 12 Caesars. So I don't know. I haven't, I haven't talked to a lot of predators. So I know they have reasons for that. I think they would see the 10 horns not as being so specific as a number, but just meaning the complete number of them, okay, the Caesars. That's how the predators position would be on that. Uh, the, the, the futurist position on the 10 horns is future earthly leaders that will come into a revived Rome. And the idealist is similar. What about the little horn? Okay, what are the different positions on the little horn? Preterists see... Um, Nero, Caesar Nero as the little horn, okay? And, and some of you guys, if you, if you never heard that, you're like, what? There's some pretty good reasons why you would think that, 
Okay, um, Nero like ravaged the church. And he did it for three and a half years, as far as I understand, which is interesting, okay? Um, so the, the people, by the way, the, pe- the preterist position, they would, they would take the book of Revelation and they would see all of the tribulation stuff as having happened in the time of 70 AD, around that day. They see the tribulation period as having happened already. And you'd be surprised how many Christians believe that. And it's, 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 I think it's okay to have that position. It's not necessarily where I'm at, but I think it's, I think it's um, you know, like all the reformers kind of believe that, um, as far as I know. I mean, like Spurgeon and Calvin, like all those guys kind of had that more of that an idea of their eschatology. Uh, the futurist position would see the Antichrist as the little horn, okay? And if you've watched the Left Behind series, then that's probably where you're at, right? And you're like, yeah, I know who it is. Um, <laughs> the Antichrist, you know? If you want to write a book that, you know, a couple people will buy and then no one will ever want ever again, write it about who the Antichrist is. Um, there's a lot of them out there. So, so the futurist position would see it as Antichrist, and so would the idealist position. Uh, what about the Ancient of Days? When he judges the beast, when's that going to happen? Well, preterists see that as having happened in 70 AD with sort of the, I don't exactly understand how that all works in their position, so you might need to talk to someone that, that knows more than me on that, but they see that as happening in 70 AD, okay? Um, futurists see the Ancient of Days destroying the beast as the future return of Christ, when Christ comes and deals with the, the um, revived Roman Empire and, and, and gets rid of the, the Antichrist, and so do the idealists. The one where you'll see a lot of difference here is the last one, son of man receiving the dominion. So when is the son of man going to get the kingdom? Okay? The preterists would say that's referring to the, the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. They would say Jesus has the kingdom. Okay? Uh, they don't read a literal millennium, for those of you that have studied it. They think millennium is referring to the, the church age, the time where the church will grow and, um, and, and thrive. And so they don't, they, that's how they see that. Um, and there's, there's reasons they believe that. Uh, and then the futurist position is that the, the son of man receiving the kingdom refers to Christ's rule over the millennium, the thousand years on earth. And then lastly, the idealists, they would see the, new, uh, they would see the son of man receiving dominion as the new heavens and the new earth. So they would see that as like, that's the end, Revelation 21, whole new world, whole new earth. Are you guys confused? Okay, those of you that are confused are really confused. And those of you that are not are like, that like this stuff, you're following along. So here's, here's my big point. There are lots of different ways to interpret some of these things. But the things that we know are really the important parts. And let me give you some of them. Okay, there, there is a lot of ambiguity and there's a lot of degrees of separation on some of this, but there's far more clarity and unity than you think. So here's what we know. Okay, we know who the first four beasts are, at least most Christians agree on that. We know who the Ancient of Days is. It's God the Father. We know who the Son of Man is. It's God the Son. We know God wins, right? If you miss that in the text, you got problems, okay? That's what happens. We know Jesus has given an eternal kingdom, right? We know the saints are given that same kingdom with the Son of Man. And we know that God will judge all evil in the final phase of history, regardless of what that looks like as it takes its form. Everybody believes, preterists, idealists, futurists, they all believe Jesus is coming back. And they believe when Jesus comes back, he's going to once and for all put evil to death. And he's going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth. Whether there's a literal millennial reign, 
We can talk about it. Whether there's a literal antichrist or it's just many antichrists that come or just an idea, we can talk about it. But Jesus is coming. And when he comes, new heavens, new earth, evil, done. That's good news. So there's a lot more we agree on than we don't agree on. Okay, let's try to zoom out and just see the main point and then I'll land the plane here. I want to look more closely at verse 16 because if, if you see it, this is really the point. This is really the point of what the angel ascribes as the reason for Daniel having this vision in the first place. Okay, so, so Daniel goes to the, the angel, verse 16, what does this mean? What is the truth of this? And look at it again. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings. Okay who shall arise out of the earth. Here's the point, guys. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom, how long? Forever and forever and ever. I mean, this is the point we're supposed to get here. The point we're supposed to get is that the kingdom is forever. All of these kings that are gonna manifest in all these different ways, they're all gonna die. They're all gonna end. They have a timestamp. But the kingdom of God is forever. It's eternal. That's the lesson that we're supposed to take. And why this would have been so encouraging, particularly to the audience Daniel was written to, is because, remember, they're sitting in exile. What's going to happen? Our kingdom's been taken away, they would say. We've been pulled out of our home. Jerusalem's being overgrown by weeds. The temple's been destroyed. The wall's been knocked down. What's going to happen? Our, our people are, are, are under threat. I mean, how many, you know, how many nations were removed geographically and actually came back? Like, Israel's one of the only ones, and they've done it multiple times, right? So, so they're, they're sitting in this place of just like, are we ever going to be back home? Are we ever going to have a forever? Is this, what, what's going to happen? This vision is meant to encourage Daniel and the saints that they will have a forever home. Okay, and it extends far beyond the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall that we see in, in Nehemiah. Okay, I think that the, the, the way he phrases time, time, and half a time is supposed to contrast with the way that he phrases forever, forever, and ever. That's what I think. I'm not going to be super adamant about it, but I think the idea is time, time, and half a time, it's going to end forever, forever, and ever, and it doesn't end. So, so what's the point? You're going to be chewed up and spit out. Life's going to be hard. There's going to be oppression. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be struggles. But mark my words, that's just for a time. What is not for a time is the eternal dwelling with God. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus has come to put an end to all ends. There will be an end to evil, a final end to all ends. That, that permanency is our future reality. The point is permanency. Permanency comes in Christ. Listen, we will never, listen. In Jesus, we will never lose anything again. Okay? In this age, we will continue to have loss. But our hope is not in this age. There will come a time where, we, where loss will be a forgotten word. Loss will be an archaic language. What is loss? What is over? What is end? This is, I don't know what this is. In eternity, there is no end. There is no loss. There is no, oops, that broke. There, there, there's no fear or anxiety about something that we love being taken from us because it is forever, forever, and ever. 
You were made for this, church. Do you understand that? You were made for this. You ache for this. Permanency. I guarantee, I said it already, but I guarantee the majority of your anxiety flows out of the fact that you know everything can be taken from you. But there is something that cannot be taken from you, and it is your place in the kingdom of God. It is the love of God for you. It cannot be taken from you. So what happens is if you live out of this reality, by, by, by live out of this, meaning you source your decision-making and your energy and your direction, you source it in this truth, if you live out of what you cannot lose, um, you will live sacrificially. The key to, to, to being generous, the key to being sacrificial is that you don't really, you're not worried about getting, giving away anything because you have everything. You want, you want my life? Take it. I, my life is not here. That's why Christians should be the most generous people in the room because Christians are filthy rich. We have everything we could ever possibly want secure in heaven. And so we say, take whatever you need. Take whatever you want. Uh, the, the result of living out of this is that we can live peaceful lives because we're not afraid. We're not fighting all the time. You know, most of our anger and most of our, our sinful responses are, are out of a fear of losing something, right? I mean, maybe even if it's like 20 seconds on your way to work, someone cuts you off, take my time. I need that time, right? We, we feel like people are taking, if, if we feel threatened, we feel like someone's going to take something from us, we become angry. We become defensive, okay? But if, if what you really value can't be taken from you, you're not fighting all the time. You're secure, okay? The holy living flows out of this. Mo all of our sin is, is, is choosing to live into temporal pleasure rather than eternal reality. That's, what's, that's what sin is. We can live patient lives because we know that our true life is hidden with Christ. Let me just read you the words of Jesus and we'll close. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew 16, or 6, 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, everything in this life is going to decay. It's gonna run out. But lay up, rather, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's one of the most profound things Jesus ever said. He, he, what he's basically saying is the thing that you love will be the thing that you invest in, and the thing that you invest in will be the thing that you love. If you want to know what you love, look at what you put resources into. If you want to know what you really love, look at the thing that you're afraid of losing. Look at the thing that you're defensive over. That's the thing that you love the most. He's saying, if you put your stock in a place where the stock cannot be taken, your heart will follow. That's why we build the kingdom of God. It's why we invest in the kingdom of God. Because as we invest in the kingdom of God, our love begins to grow for the kingdom of God. We, we put our resources into Jesus' kingdom and then our hearts follow. That's how we are to live. And that is the encouragement for all Christians for all time. So Daniel, he needed to hear this. The exiles needed to hear this. The disciples needed to hear this. We need to hear this. You're gonna go through hard things for a time. Live out of the untouchable, uncorrosive realities of the next stage. You have an eternal hope that cannot be taken away from you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. I'm gonna invite Trevor, Christina to come up and just close us out. With a song, Father, uh, thank you for Daniel. God, it's been such a great journey. We're so thankful 
that you encourage the saints, you encourage us with truth. We're so thankful that even though everything in our life is under threat to be taken or lost or corroded, that our most valuable resource, God, is you. You are the source of all joy. You are the greatest reality in the universe. And Lord, we get you forever, unhindered, unbridled. And God, we long for the end of the ends. We long for eternity. So God, thank you so much for encouraging us in these ways. Lord, we love you, and we want to sing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.